0: You're listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at how certain choices made can affect us all. One day, China will go to bed one night and wake up the next morning and be the world's biggest economy. It will be a massive, symbolic moment. In some ways, China will have won. Those are the words of our previous speaker, Dr Kerry Brown, former diplomat, now author and director of the Lao Institute at King's College London. We spoke to him last week in the first episode of our three-part series, looking in depth at China. We looked at its enigmatic leader, Xi Jinping, his background and some of his domestic political challenges. One we mentioned that we are doing a deep dive on today is that of China's economy, now at a crossroads. The government was recently forced to admit it has missed its target growth for this year, 3% of GDP. They hoped for more than 5%. The massive property sector that drove China's huge boom is on the brink of collapse. And there are reports now, previously unthinkable, that China could be on the verge of a possible recession. For a look at how China's economy is facing a multitude of challenges, we spoke to one of the best known experts on this very subject. George Magnus, former chief economist at UBS Bank and now associate at the China Center in Oxford University, sat down with us to walk us through the huge task Xi Jinping has ahead of him. To fix the economy, the engine that has driven global growth for the last two decades. And as always, my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, joins us for post-match analysis with a few thoughts of his own. Let's get straight into it.
1: This is kind of an unusual kind of shifting in priorities, I think, um, which basically, I suppose, speaks to, uh, to the times that, that we live in and the way that, that China sees it as well. Uh, the second thing is that from an economic point of view, the entire economic and financial policy elite is basically being replaced. Um, I mean, we we pretty much know the pool of personnel from which the replacements will be drawn, um, but we don't really know who's going to be doing what formally until these are confirmed by the National People's Congress in March. Um, Some of the chief regulators, the head of the central bank, the finance minister, a lot of these people uh, are better known for their loyalty uh, to Xi Jinping in years gone by, than for their experience in central government or for their um, expertise in economic and financial affairs. So, some people say it doesn't really make any difference because even the experts or the technocrats who are standing down or being dismissed, so to speak, um, I mean, nobody really stands up to Xi Jinping anyway. Um, so, what difference does it make if you just have yes men? Uh, who are doing the same thing? On the other hand, it could also mean that bad decisions get implemented that much more quickly and without uh, discussion. Um, so we'll see. Um, but obviously, this is a—it is a remarkable change, um, and quite what the consequences will be. Well, we will know because we feel it too that we are living in very kind of fractious, feisty times in terms of geopolitics uh, the world order being in flux um, to coin a, a cliche i think xi jinping along with uh, his buddy vladimir putin i mean i think they do see a moment here of opportunity where from their point of view rightly or wrongly western liberal capitalism is in terminal decline um, and that this is their moment and this is xi jinping's moment to basically uh, establish China's uh, interests and bona fides in the global governance system and in the way the world works. And this is basically the most important thing, I think, uh, as the Communist Party sees it, to realize the ambition which they have to be the dominant power by 2049, which is the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic. So... In short, I mean, I don't think the economy uh, was a sort of omission. I mean, they still think it's very important. He talked a lot about common prosperity, which we may come on to talk about in this discussion. But I think it's just kind of a, a sign of the, the shift in priorities. I, I would have made a much bigger deal about the economy, but you know, I'm not his speechwriter, so.
0: I wonder if he's doing that thing that a lot of embattled or dictators under pressure uh, do, which is to externalise the threat and maybe try and divert uh, attention towards threats from abroad, given that he does face a litany of, of issues domestically. There were clear indicators in the party congress, in his speech and in the report that came out, that, that she is moving away from that Deng Xiaoping era of focused growth to one on stability. And as you've pointed out, Beijing's growing assertiveness overseas and Chinese power on the international scene. And now Deng Xiaoping, for our listeners, he's been called the architect of modern China. He was responsible for paving the way for China to become the world's second largest economy, in this move away from Maoist ideology at the time. And when we talk about China's huge success story at the start of the 21st century, its entry into the World Trade Organization, the entry of its vast labor force onto the global market, all that stuff about, quote, socialism with Chinese characteristics, quote, which was essentially socialism blended with free enterprise and there was promotion of business and there was global engagement. How much of that do you think is now out of the door with Xi's new vision for China?
1: Well, it's absolutely right, I think, to when we look back and um, we see the, the so called reform and opening up was the kind of the campaign or the slogan that actually was launched under Deng Xiaoping and which has survived actually to this day. Although, uh, as our Explain in just a second. I don't think much of it actually lives. It's, I mean, it survives as a slogan, but there's not really much substance to it anymore. Um, But under reform and opening up, I I don't think the Chinese government or the Communist Party was ever much less ideological in its approach to thinking about things than it is today. But I do think that there was a very definite uh, difference in style and practice. And in just the way in which the government wanted to do things, so there are a lot of things that we associate with China's eruption. Uh, I mean, you mentioned joining the World Trade Organization, which was uh, really important in two thousand and one. Um, but similarly, we could talk about the creation of China's housing market, uh, which is you know biggest housing market in the world, uh, and it was it wasn't a market before nineteen ninety. You know, it was uh, it was a welfare system of, of housing allocation. Um, uh, we could talk about changes in ownership, privatization of state enterprises, substitution of you know rule by dictat uh, with institutional mechanisms, laws—not necessarily what we would call the rule of law—but they had lots of law laws, so rule by law, uh, but it's kind of party law. So there were many, many things that actually explain, I think, China's eruption, and I think that what many people did not appreciate when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, was just how different his political approach was going to be. He'd already given off lots of signals about it um, through his actions and through his rhetoric. Um, but uh, right up until 2014-15, I think there were still a lot of people who were stuck in on a, in a time warp, really, and didn't really appreciate exactly uh, how much was on the block, really, to change. And and we now know, I think, probably it's now a pretty consensus view, actually, that the governance system in China has changed uh, pretty dramatically. The role of the party and the party state in China has become uh, recalibrated, not in a changing way. I mean, it's not, it's not different from what it was, but it's being emphasized even more strongly. And the Pride of place uh, given to private enterprise as the driver of jobs and innovation, and um, employment, you know, GDP growth and so on and so forth. That pride of place still exists in rhetorical form, but actually not in practice, really, because private companies, although they're still valued, are expected to toe the party line, really, and, and follow political and party objectives as well as making money if that's possible, Um, but we know that through a kind of regulatory blitz that began in 2020 um, and which included the deposition, really, of uh, of Jack Maher as the kind of founder of Alibaba, for example, that private enterprises and private companies are having a much tougher time. Yeah, it's all become much more political and ideological. Uh, So these things have exacerbated economic problems that were brewing anyway, I would say.
0: Right I think the the issue of Chinese private enterprise I think is a really really interesting one and you've written about the issues of of inefficiency before and what I think is really interesting is that while state owned enterprises I think on paper don't count they account for a much bigger proportion of China's GDP than they do on paper because of how many businesses and how many Chinese private firms, if you go up the tree, you find out that they're actually there's a lot of majority state-owned ownership of these firms. And of course, politics, as you say, how businesses are expected to also perform on a political level as well as, as a business level. Do you think that that will hold China back, economically speaking? And what does it mean for the future of China's economy that that it has this difficult relationship with private businesses, and do you think that's going to discourage investment and, I don't know, capital flight? Is that is that is that being too histrionic?
1: I mean, I I think there's kind of some interesting comments that um, I could make hopefully here in response to your sort of challenging question, which I think is very very important. So the the state sector, uh, in terms, if you look at the the strictly defined state sector, which is you know state-owned enterprises, which are basically central government entities, and those that are basically owned and run by local and provincial governments, it, its share of uh, of the economy, of GDP, has basically remained pretty constant over the last 20 or 30 years. It's about 25%. The thing is, of course, that China's GDP now is about $17 trillion. So 25% of $17 trillion is, you know, over $4 So in any kind of trade negotiation or any kind of economic and commercial relationship that China has um, with countries in the West or in the Belt and Road universe or in the new kind of global security initiative uh, universe of countries, I mean, $4 trillion, $4.5 trillion does does a lot of talking um even more than of course uh, you know when china's gdp was like 500 billion so uh, the first is the sheer size of the state sector um relative to the size of of china's economy second thing is that even though it's 25% of gdp the assets owned by state enterprises are disproportionate to their size in the economy. So, although state enterprises are about a quarter of the economy, if you look at total assets, corporate assets, they probably own over half of corporate assets. So, that you know, they account for X percent of GDP, but they're very, very big in terms. If you look at their, you know. Uh, property, uh, cash, uh, anything that enters into uh, equipment, and so on and so forth. The third thing is, of course, that uh, the state enterprise sector can be formally uh, described, as, as I've suggested, but for reasons that I think you alluded to. We don't always know in China that private companies are, even though they may be registered as private companies, that they're as private as they may seem to be at initial scrutiny of the registration documents in other words that there may be holding companies and holding companies of holding companies and so on and so forth but even then um, and this is the fourth thing is that there are lots of kind of institutional changes have taken place recently or been emphasized more strongly for example the fact that every company where there are more than three party members has to have a party committee close to or involved in operational management, and the and these committees are being urged by the party to take a bigger role in recruitment, uh, compliance, uh, organisation and structure. You know, forward planning and so on. Um, and uh, and the government is quite adamant and clear in its uh, um, in its rhetoric to to companies, which is that it, you know it wants them to be part of. Or to play their role in the pursuit of party goals. Um, a lot of companies now are being asked, quote unquote, to make donations to party causes. One suspects that sometimes this is a quid pro quo for avoiding you know, the regulators' uh, watch and scrutiny. To cut a long story short, I mean, the state sector is being re emphasized um, and promoted, particularly in modern advanced technologies like AI, semiconductors, you know, electric vehicles, uh, quantum computing, and so on. And I think that the uh, much more ideological approach to governance in China and to private enterprise is going to be a, a drag on China's ability to compete in the future. And foreign firms who have been in China a long time have put up with the idiosyncrasies of being in, in China and coping with the kind of governance system there are becoming quite restive about some of these changes, uh, I think.
0: That's really interesting. And of course, there have been, I mean, anecdotally, there have been a lot of reports on the number of uh, expats private firms investors leaving china and, and you mentioned the issue of 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 drag of of the impact of having these party committees in these firms i was going to ask you what what the issue of that was was it just you know is it another layer of bureaucracy or inefficiency for firms to deal with or or, or is it the the issue that that companies are now having to the, their their overarching goal is not growth or profit but rather the the adherence to CCP, Marxist, Leninist, Xi Jinping ideology and, and party goals, as as you put it?
1: Pretty much. I mean, I I would just say in one word, control is basically what it's all about. Um, and in fact, there is not a sphere of um, life in China, I mean, economic, social, or political, where the centralization of control and power around the party and around Xi Jinping as the head of the party is not... Prevalent. So, in terms of enterprise and commerce in China, um, I think we have seen uh, certainly under Xi Jinping the exercise and the initiatives to increase the amount of control which the government, in its kind of broad structure, uh, seeks to secure over the activities of of companies. The Chinese court talk about the orderly expansion of capital. Okay, or rather ceasing the disorderly expansion of capital. I mean, this is just a fancy term for saying that we will determine in future, or the party will determine in future, what companies invest in and whether it's appropriate, given the party's philosophy and its uh, goals and strategies. Also, uh, we talk about sort of mixed blending of free enterprise. Remember that although output prices or prices of goods and services sold in China are largely free and Determined by the market, not all, but largely. Uh, but the prices of inputs, land, labour, and capital, are definitely not market determined. They are still very much determined by um, the state.
0: Going back to those state owned enterprises, from time to time we see a lot of features and articles popping up on those ghost districts, those empty skyscrapers, the zombie corporations. They're there, such potent symbols, I think, for some of the aspects of the problems with uh, China's quite aggressive growth strategy in the last 10, 20 years. And, And I want to talk to you about property and the debt crisis, but just on those sort of those zombie corporations, those ghost airports and abandoned building projects, where are they now? And how much do they account for sort of wastage or irretrievable cost to the Chinese coffers?
1: Um, I mean, I think it's becoming clearer to people more and more that over the last 20 years, there has been quite a lot of overbuilding because the the model was when GDP was faltering or in order to hit uh, unrealistic GDP growth targets, local governments and provincial governments would be incentivized just to build stuff. And the idea that you can build stuff and they will come. I mean, this is an old kind of Japanese thing that people talked about in the 1980s. I mean, it doesn't really work that way.
0: You've laid the groundwork beautifully for my next question to you, which is on that spare capacity, the overbuilding, the the overzealous uh, building of infrastructure, and, and that is the property crisis. And. You wrote a book a few years ago called Red Flags, and you you warned about Xi's policies and how some of them were really ticking time bombs, not just for the Chinese economy, but that but also presenting Xi with with an element of of political risk. And one of these so-called red flags that you talked about was China's cumbersome debt problem, um, particularly the the debt to GDP ratio, and. And part of that is this unsustainable growth that has been powered by credit, which is now coming back to bite consumers. But another is property and, and mortgages. We spoke to Charlene Chu earlier this year on the Evergrande crisis and the huge danger that the property crisis represents for Beijing. The Economist reported this month that more than two thirds of urban households wealth is tied up in property and the property industry underpins, I think, a fifth of China's GDP. And some people have argued that China's growth has been largely powered, or maybe not not, not solely, but largely powered by its manufacturer, not just by its manufacturing and its huge output, but by its hugely aggressive building and infrastructure spending that you mentioned. And that magic formula now is really losing steam because of this housing slump, as well as a number of other issues. The picture now, we have home buyers dropping out of making purchases. Um, There are people who have mortgages who are on mortgage strike in many places because for some of them they've paid for homes which haven't even been built yet and in some cases may never be, be built because the developers are going bust or facing liquidity crises. Or Chinese people are are seeing the value of their purchases completely flatline uh, because of the collapse in in demand. Uh, I read recently that the value of new homes in China had fallen by as much as 29% compared to a year ago. So what's your assessment of the current property crisis? And given that property ownership, not stock portfolios, not savings, um, represents the bulk of the wealth of a majority of the Chinese middle class. And what danger does the fact that the property market is kind of going bust, what danger does that present to the Chinese economy?
1: Yeah, I, I think the, I mean... This is a really important issue. I mean, it's important economically and politically. I mean, um, you say was uh, you said its property is a fifth of the economy. I mean, there's a now kind of famous paper written by famous economist Ken Rogoff and uh, an associate um, that estimated that China's property sector, if you think about uh, the construction, the materials that go into it, the white goods and products that. Um, are furnished with new apartments and the uh, services that the housing sector provides, like renting, real estate, the um, brokerage, and so on and so forth, uh, that the entire sector basically probably accounts for, they said, for 29% of GDP. Maybe that's a bit high. But anyway, it's a big number, right? So no other sector can substitute for what the property sector on its own does for China. So that's the first point. Second point is this does look like a tipping point, right? I mean, China has had a kind of property slowdowns before, for example, during the financial crisis that we had in 2008 2010. Uh, market slowed down, slowed down again uh, after the kind of the bounce back, so like so 10, uh, 11, 12 Then in 2015-16, when there was a sort of a made-in-China financial crisis, the market slowed down. But this one looks different. It looks different because the developers have gone bust. It looks different because the model of selling houses in China, which is this pre-sale model, in 2021, 90% of apartments and homes sold in China were sold on this pre-sale basis, which is you took out a mortgage to pay for it uh, and didn't take delivery for several months. Um, That model is now kaput, basically, uh, I would say. And now we know also that not only is there deleveraging, in other words, the kind of de-risking and reduction of debts in the property sector uh, of uh, utmost importance, but obviously the demographics of China's property market um, aren't very attractive either. So the cohort of 25 to 34-year-olds who are, let's say they are a kind of typical first time buyers, um, this cohort is due to drop, uh, to decline by about 25 or 30 percent in the next 10 or 15 years. So th- there are a lot of headwinds in the property sector uh, which I think are not going to come back to, um, to, to be very favourable. Prices are dropping pretty much across the board and especially in so-called tier 3 cities which are, uh, tier 3 cities are administratively, they rank below tier 1 cities and tier 2. Tier 1 cities are places like Beijing and Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. There are only five of them. Tier two. There are probably about twenty cities. Tier three cities. There are hundreds, um, and these tier three cities account for about seventy uh, percent of the housing stock, sixty percent of GDP, large numbers of construction jobs, um, and these tier three cities are just going to get absolutely hammered through this uh, the real estate uh, unraveling and denouement, uh, and prices are dropping there much more quickly. So it's really important, um, as I said, you know, politically, because this is now the middle class of China, aspirant middle class that we're talking about. Um, and so the government cannot afford to alienate these people. You've already described uh, kind of protests that have taken place, are taking place. So politically, it's really important. Economically, it's important because there isn't there isn't anything that can take its place. And China doesn't really have an alternative development model articulated yet. Uh, that can do that job.
0: And now we turn to my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, for his analysis. So Richard, we are recording this having seen the events in Indonesia as the G20 gather for their annual summit. And it was quite noteworthy because this this was the first time that President Biden, in his capacity as president, met with Xi Jinping. They had, I think, quite an interesting uh, meeting, and and their press conferences that followed. They both remarked on the fact that the last time they met face to face was in 2017 uh, in Davos, and although they've kept in pretty regular contact with calls and, and video conferences, that they both mentioned that there's really no substitute for face-to-face meetings at a time when US-China tensions are at an all-time high. And I wanted to get your sense, your analysis on the nature of their meetings. They both acknowledged that there was competition between their two countries, but that there was a need for that to not escape, to not lead to conflict, that there were really important global challenges, and that the world is looking to both China and the US to show leadership and and to deal with some of those crises. What did you make of of their meeting?
2: Well, I was quite buoyed by the news that they were going to meet, and it looks as though the meeting, in terms of the record that we've seen today, was reasonably successful. It doesn't solve any problems in the bilateral relationship, but at least it shows a willingness on both sides to talk to each other and to face up to the fact that there are some quite serious divides between them on important issues um, both globally and bilaterally so I, i think it's just generally reasonably good news for the international community as a whole and and i think this is important I mean, being realistic about the future development of international relations, the relationship between the U.S. and China is going to be seminal in terms of what the international security situation in the future may look like. So in a way, the two countries, if they aren't going to get into conflict, they absolutely need to be in dialogue.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was something that both of them seemed to acknowledge. And I think it's very interesting because this meeting, the first meeting that they've had in several years and first meeting since Biden took office, it comes just a couple of weeks after she had that long speech at the 20th Party Congress after he was confirmed for a third term where he spent most of his two-hour speech really concentrating on on security and the need to stand up to the West and some of the other challenges that China faces. And then it was quite interesting to see him smiling quite broadly and having a nice handshake with an equally smiley President Biden. And I thought it was interesting from President Xi's handout that he seemed to admit that the, US, the current US-China relationship is not the, the the situation he said is not in the fundamental interests of our two countries, and then she went on to say the world has come to a crossroads. The world expects that China and the United States will properly handle the relationship. It was interesting because, you know, we often talk in a lot of these conversations that you and I have with these geopolitical experts. Some of them feel like the US will continue to be the dominant superpower. Others think that that China is rising and that presents a really serious threat for US liberal Western hegemony. But what she seemed to be saying here was that the world is actually expecting the both of us to work together and maybe what is going to happen is that maybe neither country will sort of supersede the other. I mean, at some point, China is likely to overtake the US as the world's biggest economy, but perhaps the US in terms of political power will continue to be dominant over China. And I think the, the way the U- Ukraine-Russia war has panned out has really shown that there is, really isn't any replacement yet for the US as a dominant political force.
2: Yeah, I think to an extent um, that's true. I, I'm sure that Xi's comments are an implicit criticism of Trump and the disruption <laughs> and chaos in a way that Trump caused. But I think the other aspect of this, which is fascinating, is the the fact that she had to say the world expects the two of us. In a way, it, 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 I think that's a slight reflection of Chinese insecurity. It's Xi claiming that China, you know, has equal status on international relations. It's not Xi taking this for granted, and entering straight into a strategic dialogue with Biden. Was it necessary for him to say it? Was it necessary for him to remind the world that, you know, that the the, the the world expects the two of us to sit down? So I, I take this a little bit as Xi trying to just climb up those last few stairs on the staircase to put him on a level with the United States. And um in a way, the mere fact that he said it, I think, is a reflection that he realizes China has some distance to go before it acquires that status. And of course, you know, we talked about this so much in the past. But you have to remember, however bad the relationship is bilaterally and however many misunderstandings have been, and they're all part of issues that keep them apart, you know, the two economies are massively still massively intertwined. Uh, and interdependent to an extent.
0: I think that's totally right. Let's move on to the the interview that we did with George Magnus, Um, brilliant, brilliant expert on on Chinese economics. Um, There have been a few interesting updates recently uh, just to pull into the mix. Some things we've seen lately, China's central bank uh, and the top banking regulator have started issuing a series of measures which are aimed at bolstering housing demand and supply. And, and basically these policies, which have been signed off by Xi Jinping after that Congress, after that 20th Party Congress, these policies go some way in unwinding some of the restrictions that she had put into place, which had been sort of geared towards trying to curtail the growing the ballooning debt of property developers who were getting into this huge liquidity crisis and we've heard in our conversations with experts like Charlene Chu that since the Evergrande crisis 30 property developers have actually defaulted on their loans and this was Uh, in the headlines uh, a lot in the last year setting off warning signs and alarms everywhere that China's economy had turned a very dangerous corner. Now, these restrictions aimed at trying to force these property firms to clean up their books have done quite a lot of damage in, in curbing demand for property. And one of the things George Magnus uh, rightly pointed out, was when you take not just the property sector in terms of construction and and home buying, but all the related sectors, you know, white goods, uh, furniture, interior design, decorating, uh, all these things, it actually makes up some somewhere around 29% of GDP. I mean, it is a huge, huge part of China's economy. And the fact that people... Primarily because of bad experience, um, and the the headlines of, of of all of this have really had cold feet when it comes to investing more in in this sector, whilst it's undergoing such troubles. That is leading to a huge problem for Chinese growth, and and now it seems that the Chinese are. Are trying to find some way of of solving their growth problem. They had this estimate of of growth this year of five percent. What actually what they've actually recorded is is way smaller than that. They've recorded barely over three percent growth, and so that is going to prove all sorts of of problems um, to the Chinese coffers. So. With those new updates in mind, what did you think was the most striking sort of thing that we discussed with George Magnus? Obviously, he took us through so well some of the biggest issues that the Chinese economy is facing currently.
2: I think if you go back to basics with the whole sort of leadership of China by the Chinese Communist Party, if it has any claim to legitimacy in the country uh, as a government it is based on china's phenomenal economic success china's growth and you know its ability to lift huge numbers of the population out of poverty in addition you know to create a chinese middle class and i think what's striking about the interview is the current fragility that China faces, because I wouldn't say that, you know, let's let's say the economy is facing some really serious problems. And I, I thought the most interesting thing really was this issue of the growth rate falling to somewhere around 3%, when China, since earlier than 2000, I think, has had a great rate of close to ten percent year on year. It's been phenomenally successful, and in a way, that's assured a degree of stability in Chinese society. If now you're looking at a faltering economy, and I'm not suggesting yet you have the evidence for that, but there are sectors, i.e., the property sector, which is really in a mess then there's massive nervousness, we know, in Beijing about what the social and political consequences of that might be in the medium term. And I think, you know, the fact that the GDP statistics were delayed from being released during the party congress, um, the fact that they have to now take very seriously this loss of value in the property market when the swathes of the new Chinese middle class have their money invested in property, so i I mean I think that you know I very much um, endorse george magnus's analysis, but I think I would give it a, a more immediate tie into the social and political stability of China, which he as an economist i mean he did sort of implicitly say that, but i I think one has to be conscious of the fact the Chinese leadership, and I know from my sort of past involvement on things Chinese and studies, they're massively concerned and nervous. And and I think this probably is this is the subtext of the party congress. You know, how do we gear the, the, the country up again? Because it has been, um, and I think it still remains. I mean, 3% in China year on year doesn't work. So, although in the West, we don't, as it were, look at the economy and think about immediately think about political instability, we're more geared to the ups and downs of growth and recession um, in terms of social
0: growth. Oh, we would dream of 3% growth here in this country in the UK.
2: <laughs> well, exactly. Whereas in China, that that doesn't necessarily work. And no one's quite sure politically what China would look like. If for example it were to fall into recession, I'm not suggesting it's gonna fall into recession, but even at three percent, three percent doesn't cope with the rural with the movement of the rural population into the urban areas. It just doesn't work.
0: Yes that was very very interesting wasn't it and that is a that's a problem that she is obviously aware of because he sort of obliquely referenced those challenges in his speech i think part of the the common prosperity and the redistribution of of wealth is is, is part of of that issue and all of this becomes harder for the communist party because They're having to to hope that the Chinese people have quite a long tether when it comes to some of these difficult issues that the that the household the the average chinese household is now having to face a lot of these difficulties impacting them personally whether it's their their assets completely you know, deflating because they've invested in property or they are unable to access their their funds because banks have frozen them i mean it's it's at what point does this become a political issue for the CCP. This is something that we touched upon with our previous podcast on on our Chinese series in our look at the domestic challenges for Xi and that conversation with with Kerry Brown. But since we're looking quite deeply at at the economics, the fact that as you say, 3% of growth in the first nine months of 2022 being so far underneath what the government officially predicted, which was 5.5%, and the fact that they had to delay the publishing of those figures until after the Congress, because those numbers say we failed. The leadership of China failed. How damaging do you think that is?
2: A lot of people, I think, believe that, you know, it's not even 3.3% and that the figures have been manipulated and the growth rates are even lower but I mean, I think that the conundrum for the leadership of China at the moment, Xi in particular, is that where does he place his emphasis? Where does he place his emphasis? How does he characterize his leadership of the country? And I mean, the general view after the party congress was that he's much more interested in security of the country and of the population, and he's much more interested in political control. and And in, let's say, this idea of trying to sort of spread the benefits of growth more widely in the whole population than he is actually in growth itself and i think this is one of the difficulties for a chinese leader particularly one that is apparently you know a born again ideological communist who 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 is mad about control of the population how do you balance that you know against allowing the sort of entrepreneurial freedom and, and incentives that encourage growth so take you know china's leading entrepreneur jack ma you know he's been cut badly down to size his wealth has significantly decreased i'm sure he's still very very rich but not in the way that he was he was like a rock star businessman who had a very prominent figure across china and internationally and the ccp cut him down to size well if you take that example and then extrapolate into many, many smaller examples, particularly the number of businesses that we know are controlled by the party. And that's a very significant proportion of the economy. You begin to understand the sort of tension between these two views of what China will be like. And it's a real conundrum because you she know, you want, wants to keep control, He's putting all the emphasis on security, but he also knows, I'm sure, you know, he knows in his skin that if the growth rate is 3% or lower, there are going to be huge security problems. There will be social tensions. I mean, one thing we do know about China, but we, we don't know it in great detail, is that pretty much every morning in the central controlling area where the Government is located in Beijing. They sit down and review, you know, the things that went wrong in the last twenty-four hours, and these are mainly things like strikes, riots, anti-Covid riots, um, all of these local tensions. Some of which are really quite serious at the local level, and we never really learn or know much about what's going on. But the, the leadership is completely—I was going to say—neurotic about losing control and of course it happened it happened a long time ago for tiana and um this is when you know ultimately what did they do they called in the army to suppress um dissent uh which was probably the most extreme measure they can take so they're they're sitting there worrying you know you can have a combination of events that could lead once again to that sort of meltdown so i think my reading from listening to magnus's very brilliant sort of and thorough analysis is that behind that analysis you can see the signs of real anxiety on the part of the leadership and in a way um the one thing i was going to add you know the meeting with biden is also somewhat of a distraction do you see what i mean from from this domestic agenda and interestingly if you if if you look at that analysis that was produced as what words were mentioned most during the party congress there's this balance between not being really truthful and open about the domestic situation talking a lot about the international situation i think all of this betrays a deep anxiety about what the hell is happening to the economy in china at the moment and i think it, i think it's very very worrying i, I I think they're not quite sure where you know which lever to push forward which one to pull back Um, and balancing those levers um and that there's an element of an element of disengagement beginning to occur in terms of its relationship or integration into the international sort of economic system and it's becoming more and more challenging and difficult for you know foreign firms to invest in china and to as it were profit from the chinese economy and chinese development so i think the answer is we we we're not sure what the consequences i i i would suggest that there is a sign you know that china is changing direction i think the this issue of the exploitation of its own market by you know chinese businessmen rather than foreign companies is, is perhaps going to be rather crucial and if you look at the u.s economy it's very very powerful in relation to its domestic market okay it, it exports as well but I, it, the strength of the, the u.s economy is home-based and very much dollar related i'm not sure that china is going to be able at the moment to replicate that American strength, which it has to do if it's to contest globally the US as an alternative superpower. And I think this comes back to those statements that Xi made at the beginning of his meeting with Biden, which which, which almost, for me, are a slight reflection of Chinese insecurity because he wouldn't have had to say it if we could take China's power for granted. He would have just been sitting there at the table as an equal so I think one needs to reflect very carefully. China is at a fork in the road. And of course, we mentioned this before, it has a very brittle political system and the, and the, the political system is not well geared to handling any significant political and economic change. And, and of course, China's economic performance has been absolutely central and crucial to its rise and to its political success. And uh, maybe we're in a phase where we're going to shift into a new type of territory. I mean, the only thing I would say is, you know, Xi had this pleasant exchange with Biden, but we, we had no indication there of how China would react if it didn't get its own way.
0: What, what, what do you mean if it didn't get its own way?
2: Well, on the issues that it thinks are its it, it, ultimately its own affairs, like the Uyghurs, where it's been criticised, like Hong Kong, where it's been criticised, where you know. Um,
0: oh, I see. Yes.
2: And you know, China absolutely hates you know being told by the international community how to
0: behave. That's all for this episode of One Decision and the second of our three-part series looking in depth at China at a crossroads. We've considered Xi Jinping, his background and his domestic challenges, now the economy, and what are the biggest challenges for one of the world's biggest markets. Next week, for our final instalment, we zoom out to the bigger picture. What does China have in store for the international community and the geopolitics of the region? What will Xi's new era of unlimited power mean for Taiwan? for Asia and for the West. Don't miss it. Coming to you next week. We hope you'll join us then. From me and the team, thanks for listening.